and a very good morning to you. Welcome to Money for Nothing. I'm Brian Curtis. One mystery moves closer to being solved. The HKMA intervenes again in the currency markets as sanctions on Russia spur flows here. In other news, the Portugal bailout spurs markets. HSBC says revenue will rebound next year, and the World Bank pledges $200 million to fight Ebola. In news headlines, Israel winds down further in Gaza, and a man in New York City is being tested for Ebola. Well, to get us started, here's some audio food for thought. I think that what's going on in Spiritu Santo now is showing that the Europeans can react better and in a more thoughtful way on a bank workout. More from Hans Humes from Greylock Capital later, and more on interest rates. I call it in a metaphor, wages, rages. Um, they're not raging, and because of that, the Fed uh, you know, will be on hold for at least as long as the market expects. That's Bill Gross from PIMCO, and we'll be discussing rates a bit later. Guests on the program include Francis Jung from Credit Agricole CIB on rates, the HKMA and the RMB. Enzio von File from IAM Legacy will be along, and he'll say, avoid Hong Kong. There are too many homemade problems here. And Jonathan Shea, Chief Executive Officer at HKIRC, will tell us more about O2O. That's online to offline. You buy it online, but you pick it up in your neighborhood. Well, sort of. Details coming up after 8.30. We'll get you a check on Asian markets in just a minute, uh, in the first few minutes of trading. And uh, then we'll bring in our guests after a look at some of the leading stories. Li Ka-shing is making plans for his first major foray into the aviation business. Jiang Kong says that it is in preliminary talks to buy planes from Dublin-based AWAS. AWAS is one of the world's largest aircraft leasing companies. RTHK's Richard Pine reports. In a statement, Chen Kong said it has submitted a preliminary non-binding proposal to possibly acquire certain aircraft from AWOS. It did not say how many aircraft it's considering buying or how much the deal would be worth. But reports say the Irish company is planning to sell about 100 newer aircraft, including Airbus and Boeing planes, in a deal that could be worth about 5 billion US dollars. The developer said the possible deal was at a very preliminary stage and gave no assurances that an agreement will ultimately be reached. It said it has been exploring new investment opportunities to generate additional stable revenue streams to drive forward its growth momentum, and that the proposed purchase was one such opportunity. If the deal goes through, it will be Mr. Lee's first major foray into the aviation business. In late 2003, the eldest son of Lee Ka-shing, Victor, tried to buy a stake in Air Canada, but that attempt later failed as he encountered problems with the airline's labor unions. In market action this morning in Australia, the main equity uh, gauge is up a couple of points at 55.36. Uh, and in Seoul, the Kospi is down a couple of points, off four at 20.76, a drop of a fifth of a percent. In currency trading, the dollar yen is at 102.56, not much change there. And the euro is trading at 1.3422. Seems like uh, the euro has found a new home against the dollar right around 134. And also the pound is at 13 Hong Kong dollars and seven cents. And Wall Street stocks were higher overnight. Portugal announced that bailout for Banco Espirito Santo, which comforted investors to a degree. Also, Berkshire Hathaway beat earnings estimates and rose 3.1 percent. The S&P 500 up 0.7 percent at 1938. And the Dow was up 75 points at 16,569. Gone for the moment, apparently the rate fears of last week. 
the American wages on Wayne uh, Main Street uh, are Janet Yellen's number one concern, and right. she's spoken about that a number of times. And you know, it looks like a two percent number. Here's what. Janet Yellen wants. She wants 3% plus because after subtracting 1% from uh, productivity, you mm-hmm. get unit labor costs of 2, and that's exactly the target that the Fed is shooting for. So, you know, this number it is very bullish for bond markets, and I would think it stabilizes equity right. markets. Yeah, that's PIMCO's Bill Gross, the so-called bond king. The yield curve steepened late last week and overnight. Ten-year Treasury yields dropping one basis point to 2.48%. So at least for the moment, market interest rates are not heading higher. We're joined by Francis Jung, head of Asian Rates Strategy and Global Markets Research at Credit Agricole CIB. Francis, good morning. Good morning. So I wanted to do a little bit on the HKMA. It's intervened in the foreign exchange market again to weaken the Hong Kong dollar. Uh, Sanctions against Russia over Ukraine are part of this uh, growing speculation about where the funds are are coming from. The HKMA bought 925 million U.S. dollars in New York and Hong Kong in the past day. Now, some guests on this program, Francis, have been saying it's no big deal. Others say it's really right at the heart of, of all the anger that is developing in Hong Kong. What say you? Um, to me, uh, this kind of intervention is just a mechanical one, right, due to the Hong Kong dollar, U.S. dollar pack. And uh, there could be various theories about the inflow. So one of it uh, that the Hong Kong MA cited is the dividend payout. However, looking at the uh, history or historical data that uh, usually uh, this kind of flows would be more um, huge in the first two quarters of the year. Now it's already coming into the third quarter, so it is still uh, a bit strange to me. Uh, the Hong Kong dollar has been in the past seen as a substitute for the U.S. dollar when uh, risk aversion is very high and then uh, maybe some uh, confidence in the U.S. dollar was relatively weak. However, the current situation is not the case, so maybe just some selective uh, investor are trying to park their funds at the Hong Kong dollar. And uh, one big picture is also that now the global interest rate environment is still very soft with uh, interest rates very low as a backdrop. So um, the worries over any capital outflow from Asia is very minimal. Hence, uh, we continue to see capital inflows into the Hong Kong dollar market. Sure, it could be money from investors just looking for um, stronger growth here and in China. It could be money from Indonesia. One, one guest speculated that. Lots of people talking about Russia. The dividend story doesn't seem that likely because we haven't seen this kind of intervention all that often and you know dividends come around um, a couple times a year so um, you wonder about that but the argument about whether it's hurting us and fomenting a bit of anger if the dollar was a lot stronger here in other words if they weren't keeping the Hong Kong dollar down if we didn't have the peg and the dollar were stronger then all our high costs would be lower right exactly but there's always uh, some downside if you were like to maintain the stability of the Hong Kong dollar. In the past, we have been uh, blaming it for whether inflation or deflation. But currently, I don't think the pressure is uh, very uh, immense for us to really deviate away from the peg because uh, inflation or deflation fears are both actually quite out of the way for the Hong Kong dollar market at least. Uh, so overall and going forward, we would expect um, a stronger U.S. dollar. And the Hong Kong dollar is still uh, fluctuating within some range uh, against 
against the U.S. dollar. And indeed, if the U.S. dollar is stronger and Hong Kong dollar is even stronger, it would maybe help correct some of the asset prices in the domestic economy rather than uh, focusing on the negative impact on the cost level. Yeah, I think some people would be concerned that, you know, we're having the opposite reaction that we had when the Asian financial crisis hit there. The Hong Kong dollar was really being pushed on the weak side and, you know, the economy had to adjust and therefore you had a big drop in asset prices. Uh, the stock market was way down and the, and the property market fell ultimately almost 70%. So since this is the opposite of that, are you fearful that maybe Hong Kong housing prices race even further to the upside? driving forces were actually quite different during the Asian financial fire crisis. There was um, across the board uh, confidence uh, matter. So, of course, in Asia, uh, we were uh, negatively impacted. However, in under a more normal situation, that would be um, the law of one price, although uh, properties are not tradable. But if uh, Hong Kong dollar is getting even stronger, you would need actually uh, local inflation or prices to adjust to the opposite way. Of course, if you are talking about some crisis things, then the direction uh, or these kind of a correlation could just break down. Okay, so not something that sounds like from your standpoint, not something to worry about too much. Let's talk a little bit about um, uh, Bill Gross there talking about rates to stay low. There is that camp. I played a couple of comments yesterday from uh, from a, a, a chief economist at Moody's Analytics, and he was of the same view that um, wages, while we got a scare last week uh, in the employment cost index, the wages in the jobs report were flat, no big deal, and so so we don't have to worry about wages spurring interest rates going higher. What's your view? Right. Indeed, we are getting very mixed data from the U.S. Uh, recently. But our base case scenario is still for some continued recovery. I would say actually the market is being quite complacent and the communication or the message that the Fed is sending out is also a little bit uh, mixed and confusing. So uh, if the central banks continue to try to sound that dovish, and definitely the market is not prepared for a higher interest rate environment. If you look at the Fed futures, it has always been implying a lower interest rate than even the Fed uh, MBC members' own forecast. But ultimately, we would expect uh, the Fed hiking cycle to start uh, probably in the middle or or the second half of next year. So, and that, sorry. I was just going to say, so does that mean for the moment then that we don't need to sell all of our high yield? Uh, but uh, the problem is the market may actually react um, some months before the actual start of the hiking cycle. When we talked to some uh, asset managers, some were actually um, quite hawkish, uh, planning to reduce their <clears throat> long position in bonds uh, by the end of this year. So it means that for people who have a lot of money piled into dividend-paying stocks, utilities and uh, REITs and others, and the other camp that's got a lot of money parked in high yield, this gives them an opportunity to start reducing their position. Seems like you'd advise that. Um, we would expect actually from an asset class um, allocation perspective, uh, when the bond market is uh, selling off, then of course uh, some uh, asset reallocation back to equities or even some riskier asset could happen. Uh, however, if uh, someone is still managing uh, the so-called bond portfolio, it really depends on the space. For example, in Europe, uh, you have the peripheral bonds are still much favored despite uh, the already much tightened spread, meaning that, for example, like Spanish or other bonds are not offering much higher yield than uh, the Germany bonds. But uh, in a risk-on environment, uh, some investors may still go for the high yield bond. Okay. All right, Francis, thanks very much for joining us here on Money for Nothing. Francis Jung, head of Asian Rate Strategy, Global Markets Research at Credit Agricole, CIB. 
Well, Portugal has moved to provide a state loan worth 4.4 billion euros to rescue the country's second largest listed bank. It carries an incremental interest rate to encourage its repayment before the maturity of two years. So this is a bailout, but it's the kind of bailout that investors and academics liked. I think one of the constructive things to say about it is contrast it with the, the Cyprus <clears throat> Bank workout. Please. Right. Uh, so in Cyprus, it was catastrophic because they went after the wrong parties. They went after the depositors. Uh, here, it's going after the junior debt holders and the equity holders. Well, that's what I think yeah. the formula is for the future. Um, showing that you're serious by recognizing problems, isolating them, uh, imposing hits on the the junior people. That's Professor Charles Calamiris from the Columbia Business School. Meantime, hedge fund operator Hans Humes uh, from Greylock Capital also thinks that the handling here was much better than with Cyprus. The Cyprus situation was sort of an illustration of how dysfunctional decision-making can be in Europe because they were reacting to this impression that it was Russians with the money and deposits. So instead of doing something rational, they were reacting mm. to, to something political. Mm. And they ended up fumbling the entire thing before finally getting something that was good enough in Cyprus. I think that what's going on in Spiritus Santo now is showing that the Europeans can react better and in a more thoughtful way on a bank workout. And uh, that was Hans Humes from Greylock Capital. Meantime, Enzio von File, consultant at IAM Legacy, will be coming up in a few short minutes. But first, we'd t- like to talk a little bit about HSBC. HSBC posting uh, late yesterday a 12% drop in first-half profit, slightly worse than expectations. Pre-tax profit came in at $12.3 billion U.S. dollars, down from $14 billion a year ago. Asian markets, including Hong Kong, contributed the bulk of the profit. Earlier, the bank singled out the civil disobedience movement here as the only reason for cutting its investment outlook on the Hong Kong market. Chief Executive Officer Stuart Gulliver declined to comment on the Occupy Central movement. Political uncertainty in any country, anywhere in the world, is not a positive for the investment climate. So the the comment is more about political uncertainty, irrespective of which part of the political spectrum that comes from, And I don't want to specifically comment on Occupy Central. But political uncertainty, whether we're talking about Hong Kong, the UK, with the Scottish referendum and elections coming up, the United States with its budget ceiling, you know that political uncertainty is not a positive for markets. That's Stuart Gulliver, the CEO of HSBC. Revenue was flat, while operating costs rose 2% from a year ago, mainly due to tighter regulatory requirements. Mr. Gulliver said possible interest rate increases in Britain later this year and in the U.S. uh, next year will help boost the bank's revenue. Look, if sterling rates go up in the fourth quarter, then I would expect some improvement in our revenue but in 2015, not in the fourth quarter of 2014. So, so you should assume that any improvement would be lagged six months after the rates actually go up. So that's why uh, I featured as one of my headlines this morning that uh, that he, the chief executive officer, is saying that revenue will rebound next year for the big bank. Let's say good morning now to Enzio von File, consultant to IAM Legacy. Enzio, good morning. Good morning, Brian. <clears throat> Avoid Hong Kong homemade problems in the economy uh, too strong. That's your view. Why? Hong Kong is not taking ownership for its own problems, instead constantly peering over its shoulders at what 
it thinks Beijing may want. And I don't think that Beijing ever told us to pollute, to stop speaking English, to foment the cartels. It did not tell the younger generation to develop an entitlement attitude. And so I think that these are homemade problems, which normally in the case of China, markets picking up, which I've said for some time, normally Hong Kong is the water skier off the back of the Chinese speedboat, not this time around. We've decoupled. So you think people in Hong Kong should roll up the shirt sleeves and and get to work and do a few things before they criticize uh, all these uh, external problems. Give me three things that should be done in the short term. One thing is to start beefing up the English standards here. I think that that's not going to happen like tomorrow, but I think that that's something a, an Arabist friend of mine said that Hong Kong's English standards are worse than those of the Iraqi farmers, which is a little bit surprising. Secondly, oh, I wait think- a second before you go on, because mm. you just a moment ago said that we were uh, skiers on the back of the China speedboat. So all those people that you think should be studying English, perhaps they're studying Putonghua. Ah, but they speak neither Putonghua nor English. They speak some kind of a mishmash. <laughs> so get them both, both right and then get, move get on. them both right. But particularly English, not – I mean I'm bilingual myself as most of your listeners know. It's really just that if we are selling ourselves as an international financial center, then you've got to be able to speak English. And many tourists coming into Hong Kong, some of whom I see obviously as anybody does here, say that the English on the mainland is already superior to that of ours here. Beijing never told us to stop speaking English and I think that's one key thing that can be done. The second one is that all of this talk about the minimum wage, maximum working hours is surely detrimental to Hong Kong. It's not really as if the younger generation, perhaps this is a third generation problem, are really rolling up their shirt sleeves anyway. I think they have become, they've been given an entitlement attitude. Indeed, in the Hong Kong budget, you will find that the social welfare spending is by far at 50 billion a year the single largest contributor to our social to our um, overall budget spending that's not good it's all social welfare education and health care isn't it pollution again something that is not going to boost the economy but for heaven's sakes we could be doing things to um, to cut pollution here in Hong Kong. Instead, everybody just keeps on saying, A, it's a Guaido problem, or B, it's a mainland issue, where we could also, for instance, be doing other things like increasing the moorings for luxury yachts in Hong Kong. That would create a few job spaces. But no, the government decides that it wants to fiddle around with yet another consultation on this rubbish, and uh, not on this rubbish, but uh, another rubbish consultation in order to then do precisely nothing. Okay, now we had a pretty weak retail sales report uh, out recently. uh, And you say that um, this is indicative of something. What's it indicative of? Pervasive job insecurity. People are not willing to open their wallets and spend, except, of course, for those disliked mainland tourists. That's another attitudinal problem that I think we've got to change here, that they may not be our favorite cup of tea, but for heaven's sakes, they bring in a great deal of money into Hong Kong. The locals, I think, are spending less and less because guess what? Their job insecurity is is heading south. And part of that, again, is because the job attitude has been heading south. So why employ somebody who really wants to look at their watch at five o'clock and say, hmm, time to go home now? 
a relatively famous local columnist uh, wrote that don't really read too much into those retail sales because they don't really take into account services. And if you look at overall spending, I mean, when you get a haircut, you know, that's kind of considered services and not retail spending. uh, But that's not so bad. Uh, Do you buy that argument? My friend Jake is a good economist. We've known each other for <laughs> okay. 20 years now, I think. All right. I think that um, he is correct, but I would also – and that certainly is, is key that services expenditure is, is crucial. One, though, we don't know what's been spent on services for that second quarter, which is I think what he was alluding to. But more importantly, that whenever the retail sales figures go up – I'm not singling out Jake – people tend to say, yippee-doo, that's wonderful. When they go down, people tend to look for excuses to say, well, actually, it's not that bad because, after all, we do have services sales that are accounted for elsewhere. Well, we should just seek the truth. What is the truth? Well, the truth is to get on back to the old Hong Kong of wanting to find a job, to get a job, and to keep a job. But what's happening is that this cancer of entitlement spending is beginning to come into Hong Kong to repeat the number, the single largest budget figure that I'm aware of on the expenditure side of the ledger is social welfare spending, entitlement spending going through the roof, and that's not going to change. And that's, I think, something that needs to be addressed by the government through things that are designed for the economy like minimum wage, which are not good, but particularly maximum working hours. That really is the end of Hong Kong, and Beijing never has dictated that. Some people would bristle at some of these things you're saying, Enzio. Um, if you look at a lot of the social welfare spending, it's, it's directed at either people who are poor or the elderly. And yet you're also saying that it's young people who have too much of an entitlement mentality. Absolutely. First of all, on the directive, on, on the spending sort of direction, my concern has always been that it's really the, the truly poor people who are not getting what they should be. It's fine and good for some idiot to go and tell everybody here to get $6,000 and now these wonderful Democrats to tell all of us that we each should be getting $10,000 in cash. Why do you and I need $10,000? Give it to the cage people. If welfare spending were so effective in Indeed, then we wouldn't have caged people in the first place. But those are the people who are being left out. On the young people's side, I see this time and time again, just with the secretaries and the firms that we all work for, that 5, 5.30, it's time to tap the watch and go home. The English-speaking standards are going south. And just the whole willingness to, frankly, as the British would call it, to muck in roll your sleeves up and get on with the job, those are being cast by the wayside because we're now all festooned with college degrees, which really mean nothing. So today, not so much the financial analyst, but the political analyst uh, is is Enzio. So let's go back to the overarching argument, which you said was uh, don't buy Hong Kong because we've got too many homemade problems here that need to uh, be fixed before the economy purrs. But you say buy China. Why? Because China does show a semblance of leadership through Xi Jinping. He is trying to get things done. We know it's not very pleasant with the corruption crackdown. We also know that he is trying to lift things like the hukou system, in other words, to make the Chinese population more mobile. He has got the PBOC 
creating what in our economic clock world is called an excess supply of money. In other words, there's a lot more money around, so it can start chasing some assets. That also is beginning to firm up on the Chinese import side. You see an excess demand for goods beginning to come through. So in China, the cycle is working because it has not welfared its way out of a system yet. If if anything, Hong Kong is going into the welfare mall whilst the Chinese are leaving that welfare dungeon. So some interesting themes. I mean, you're a product of what you often call the welfare museum of Europe. Yes. And also the um, one of the leaders in democracy, the United States, as yes. you spent so much of your life in the United States. Yes. But it, critics would say it seems like you're arguing for autocratic rule, one-party rule, that China is getting things done, therefore – you know, it's 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 benign. It's good. no, I don't think so at all. Because in democracies, basically, my critical view on democracies is that in democracies, particularly in the West, you get voted in by saying, "If you vote for me, you need never work again." Hurrah, says the audience. In the East, particularly in China, the government officials say, "Leave if you leave me in power," which is a form of democracy. If you leave me in power, then I will most certainly create jobs for you. So it's not one party rule that I'm advocating, quite the contrary. It is open, transparent, functioning democracy, and certainly not the type that we're seeing with these antics in LegCo at present. Okay, Enzio. Um, you know, you're a financial advisor, and yet um, you often say don't listen too much to conflicted financial advisors. Let's, uh, let's have a, a little commentary on that. Well, what we've had recently is the LM investment management crisis. I'm not privy to this at all, but I did read my South China Morning Post on Sunday last week, and all that I can glean there is that all the classic mistakes were made. People, instead of looking for 35 years of experience, looked for 35-year-olds to invest, to advise them. Instead of um, seeking honest advice, they seeked, they sought dishonest advice, and instead of wanting to save money by investing prudently, they decided to go for that good old worst creator of um, help, which is worst creator of investments, which is greed. Greed has always been a very bad counselor. So you've got greed, dishonesty, and high costs that have led to this um, LM investment management crisis, and I'm afraid that many people continue insisting for whatever reason on buying such advice from these what I call CFAs, conflicted financial advisors. We're trying to do something about that, but it's not a, an easy ride. People still seem to want to have dishonest, conflicted advice. And so briefly, your model is um, they don't have to pay a commission per every action. Absolutely. They pay, they pay a very low, flat, honest, transparent fee. That's it. And for that, they get totally unconflicted advice. Okay. And by the way, they save a lot of money. Give me one cool, uninflicted idea, investment idea. The one would have to be that you buy ETFs, exchange-traded funds. They will never, ever underperform the market. They cost between 15 and 25 basis points, which is way below the investment cost ultimately of about 500 
basis points. And those ETFs, I think, should be very much focused okay. on China and America. Okay, thanks very much, Enzo. Out of time, the news shortly. Uh, always a pleasure. Enzo von File, consultant to IAM Legacy. Briefly in the market, so we see some gains in the Nikkei. In Tokyo, it's up 14 points at 15,488. Uh, mixed, though, is mostly the story. Australia, slightly higher. Seoul, slightly lower. Let's get a check of the weather. Mainly fine and very hot today. Isolated showers expected. Some thunderstorms later in the day. The maximum temperature should be about 33 degrees. And looking forward for the next couple of days, sunshine expected. Just a few showers towards the weekend. The news coming up next. The latest in news with Todd Harding. Israeli and Hamas officials say they've accepted an Egyptian proposal for a three-day ceasefire in Gaza, beginning later this afternoon. Egypt is then set to host indirect talks to work out a long-term truce over the next three days. Several previous ceasefires have collapsed, including a similar plan for a 72-hour truce that broke down last Friday in heavy fighting. Both sides blamed each other. And last night, a plan for a seven-hour humanitarian pause in some parts of Gaza abruptly ended after a few minutes. Palestinians accused Israel of breaking its ceasefire by bombing a refugee camp in northern Gaza, killing a woman and an eight-year-old girl. Israel's military spokesman, Peter Lerner, says militant rocket fire must stop. We've destroyed about a third of their rocket capabilities. They've launched about a third at us, and we expect that they have some few thousand rockets still in their arsenal, so they can continue their aggression against Israel. It's a decision they have to make. They have to decide whether they want to continue um, launching these rockets at, at our civilians. Rescuers searching among the rubble of the earthquake on Sunday in southern China have been digging through homes to try to find survivors. Reports from one town in Yunnan province say 32 people, including a five-year-old boy, were freed from a residential block. Thousands of police, soldiers and firefighters have been deployed to assist in the operation. The BBC's John Sudworth reports from Shanghai. In Long Tushan, the epicentre of the earthquake, bodies are being wrapped in blankets and laid out in the streets. Cut off by landslides, the township has been unreachable by road, so when the bad weather finally cleared enough to allow the military helicopters in, the priority was to tend to the living, not the dead. State media are reporting that nearly 80,000 homes have been destroyed and more than 100,000 seriously damaged. And that's the latest news summary from RTHK. Good morning to you. This is Money for Nothing here on Radio 3. I'm Brian Curtis. Uh, We'll get to details on some of the top stories that you heard there in the news in just a moment. Also, some of the stories that we've been following this morning on the business and finance side. The HKMA intervenes again as sanctions on Russia spur flows here. So money flowing in. Some people speculating a lot of it is coming from Russia. Portugal has bailed out Banco Espirito Santo, and that has spurred markets globally. Most of the markets were up overnight in terms of equities. HSBC saying revenue will rebound next year. And also, we'll get to this story, the World Bank has pledged some $200 million to fight 
Ebola. And also a guest coming up a little bit later will be Jonathan Shea, the chief executive officer of HKIRC. We'll be looking at offline or rather online to offline. You buy something online, you can pick it up in a close locale. But first, details on the top news stories. Rescuers have found more than two dozen survivors in homes and buildings that have been shattered by an earthquake in Yunnan province. The death toll is still at about 400, with 1,800 injured. RTHK's Samantha Butler has details. Rescuers digging in the debris by hand freed a five-year-old boy whose legs were injured. It also said firefighters rescued 32 people who'd been trapped but had also retrieved 43 bodies. Drenched survivors, including some half-naked, were sitting along muddy roads in the rain waiting for food and medication. Medics were reporting severe shortages of medicine and an inability to perform operations on the injured. Rainstorms are expected to continue to hinder rescue efforts. Roads have caved in, forcing aid workers to travel on foot. The Weather Bureau says the area near the centre of the quake will suffer thunderstorms over the next three days. Repeated aftershocks are also complicating the work. The death toll is expected to rise after rescuers reach remote communities to assess casualties. Meme Leung is the head of emergency humanitarian affairs for World Vision China. Mike Weeks asked her what the conditions are like on the ground in northeastern Yunnan. Our assessment team is sending in a supply of tents and um, hygiene kits because we uh, see that there is going to be a large number of uh, people being evacuated um, from the disaster area. Uh, we heard there's about over 230,000 people have to be relocated to temporary places. So there's a big need out there for um, shelter and uh, for um, people being relocated. They need supplies. Uh, to help them. Is that similar to the needs that were faced after the massive 2008 earthquake in Sichuan? I was in another Sichuan earthquake last year, if you remember, and that was relatively better than this one because uh, after the 2008 quake, uh, they have already have better infrastructure and houses, so the damages are less severe as compared to this one. The place is in a very poor area where people are still living in uh, mud brick houses. So you, uh, since this is uh, the most severe quake that have affected the area uh, in almost like uh, 14 to 15 years, that's why uh, structures are not strong enough to withstand the quake tremors. And there are a lot of damages, and we have a lot of um, people that need help on our hands. So things like essential services like water and electricity are obviously gone in these areas. Yeah. Um, The government is uh, rushing to deliver these uh, basic necessities, and I think uh, there will be a lot of camps, temporary camps that need to be set up to rehouse these people. And um, since the area is so badly damaged, there will be a lot of uh, large-scale rehabilitation, rebuilding of the community, and that will need a lot of help from uh, both government and from the public. Mei Mei Leung, the head of emergency humanitarian affairs for World Vision China. 
The Mount Sinai Medical Center in New York has confirmed it is treating a suspected Ebola case. It says it admitted a man yesterday suffering from high fever and gastrointestinal symptoms who had recently returned from West Africa. This comes as the Nigerian government confirmed that a doctor who treated a Liberian Ebola patient in Lagos had contracted the disease. It's the second confirmed Ebola case in Africa's most populous country. The BBC's Tommy Oladipo reports. This fresh case confirms the widespread fears that the first Ebola patient spread the virus when he arrived in Lagos two weeks ago. Patrick Sawyer showed symptoms of the virus and was taken to hospital, but his fellow passengers were not quarantined. The Nigerian government says it has since traced 70 people who came into contact with the patient after he arrived on a flight from Liberia. The health minister, Onyebuchi Chuku, says eight of those people are now in isolation and under strict observation. Meantime, the World Bank has announced up to 200 million U.S. dollars in emergency assistance to Liberia, Sierra Leone, and Guinea. This is to contain the spread of Ebola. The death toll is now around 900. The funding will also help those countries improve their public health systems and cope with the epidemic's economic impact. The WHO says the daily rise in new cases shows that more funding is urgent. Here's the WHO's Gregory Hartle. At the moment... The, the outbreak is expanding faster than we can respond. We do really need a lot of people on the ground. Um, we need, a, a, above all, people who are willing to work or can work and have the experience to work in Ebola wards. It's an extremely, extremely delicate job. It's a dangerous job. You have to have the proper kind of equipment. We need people who can be actually kind of public health detectives going door to door and tracing contacts. The contact tracing is so important. Gregory Hartle from the WHO. Egypt says it has brokered a 72-hour ceasefire in Gaza. Some observers say that Israel is moving toward a conclusion to its incursion in the area. Is this having much of an impact on global investments? Are the latest moves encouraging? The Maverick investor Mark Faber says no. Well, I wouldn't call it uh, encouraging, and I doubt that this will be the end. But I don't think that uh, the situation in Palestine has much impact on global markets. I rather think that events elsewhere in the Middle East, in Syria, in Iraq, are of more importance, because especially the ISIS rebels, they may decide one day to turn against Saudi Arabia. And if that happened, obviously it would be a very negative development for stability in the Middle East. And contrary to what many people would have thought might have happened, oil prices have not spiked. Recently, or just recently, the price of oil has been weak. I think if the turmoil in the Middle East increases, as I believe it will eventually, then obviously oil prices will again rebound and maybe make new highs. So I think that may be a very significant factor for the global economy. Mark Faber from the Boom, Doom and Gloom report. Let's take a look at oil prices. Uh, they did pick up a little bit overnight. Brent crude 105.43 a barrel. That's just slightly higher. It was tracking around 104 yesterday. Gold is a little softer at $1,288.10. The renminbi fixing rate 616. 
And the Australian dollar is trading now at 93.26 cents. Again, markets in Asia, equity markets are mixed. The Nikkei is higher. So is the main index in Australia. But the Kospi in Seoul is a little bit lower. Well, let's get back to uh, look at business and finance now uh, with a live interview we have coming up. Jonathan Shea, the chief executive officer of HKIRC. And this topic is you buy something online and you pick it up at a store nearby. It's a fairly new trend called online to offline or O2O. And we're joined by Jonathan Shea in our studios. Jonathan, good morning. Good morning, Brian. Just as we get started, I wonder if you and your colleagues there in our studios in Admiralty could put the phones on the floor or into the back pockets, and we will eliminate that uh, interference. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about this this trend of O2O, and uh, maybe you can explain it to people and to the extent that it is happening here in Hong Kong and in China. Well, thank you, Brian. Uh, The term O2O, unfortunately, uh, can have multiple meanings. Uh, so, uh, put it simply, uh, the, the base, the, the first meaning of O2O is, uh, that, uh, a service can be ordered or, uh, sort of, uh, placed online, but then has to be fulfilled offline. For example, uh, if you are ordering a taxi using a mobile app, then this is an ex- example of an O2O, uh, service where you order your taxi online, but then you have to have your service fulfilled on the street. How about it's something as simple as pizza delivery? Yes, that is also an example. Okay, so this is a very broad uh, um, segment that we're talking about. You're right. And therefore, it really doesn't mean a lot. Okay, but what what about this trend of of being able to buy something online, benefiting from a company's lower prices online, but then being able to have it shipped or, or... you pick it up at, at, a, at a store nearby. Yeah, you're right, Brian. And that is also the second meaning of the term O2O, whereby a business, like what you have said, an, e, an, an, an e-business uh, traditionally offering the service or online through a website, they, are now find, they have now found that uh, to make it more fulfilling, uh, make, it, make the buying experience more enlightening for customers, uh, they have to put in a traditional shop or physical shop uh, in the street. Uh, the reason being that uh, some customers really like to have the convenience of collecting their their uh, goods uh, at a shop. So is it cheaper because they have to pick it up and it's not delivered to their door? You're right, and the cost will be lower. And secondly, I think it's also a very important uh, factor is that they can actually inspect the good at the shop. And if there's something wrong with the good, they can actually uh, re- request a replacement at the spot. So it seems like there would be a lot of synergies with the physical shops. You're right. And thirdly, uh, there is an additional selling opportunity for the seller, for, for the business as well. When the customer is at the shop, you know, there will be displays of new goods or new services. And there is an, another selling opportunity there. Does this hold any implications for cybersecurity? Uh, in a way, uh, because in the past few years, uh, there have been some bad experience of uh, on, uh, gained by some online shoppers. For example, they received goods through the post, but the good wasn't uh, what they ordered, or they found out that the good actually was not suitable for them because they cannot inspect the, the good physically when they place the order online. And therefore, they are now finding going back to a physical shop to 
receive and inspect the good is a better idea. Is and and is and to to sort of um, safeguard their investment that way. So this is just part of what you look at. Uh, tell me a little bit about the basic business of HKIRC. Okay. Uh, May I also just mention the third meaning of O2O briefly? Okay, sure. Yeah, Brian, thank you. Uh, actually, the third meaning is for a company who which uh, conduct their business online or which offer online service is now stepping into the, the realm as, as you know into the area of traditional business. Uh, for example, companies like Tencent and Alibaba, they are now trying to set up banks, uh, you know, in in China. So they are now expanding their scope. Uh, not no longer they are not no longer an online service company, no longer a company which only look at online businesses. They are now going stepping into traditional businesses. So that is also a, what people saw as the meaning of O two O. Do you see a lot of regulatory hurdles in this? Um, we've seen a little bit of a clampdown in China, although it seems the indications are that this will proceed, but it just takes some time. Well, uh, in one way, yes. But on the other hand, I believe uh, the authority also wants to have um, operators who have more innovative ideas mm-hmm. to diversify the, the way they, they offer the services to, to customers. So from what you've seen of the way Alibaba and Tencent are doing this in, in China, um, does it look like it's going to be it's going to have a huge commitment? I mean, Alibaba already has sold a ton of investment products. Yes, uh, they are already doing that uh, through their online uh, platform. Uh, now they are looking at the big thing is to really have set up a physical bank. Yes, yes. and in, and is trust a big factor in this? Do people do you find that people more and more are trusting some of these operators more than the old legacy banks? Well, you're right. Uh, it will take some more time to establish the trust. Uh, at the moment, people still believe more in the traditional banks because of oh, no, the brand name and, and, and the time they have been around. So does it mean that the only the biggest players will be successful in this area? The, the upstarts and the fly-by-nights and just young companies generally trying to um, penetrate this market may have trouble because they haven't established a long-term relationship. You're right. And that, that is a factor of trust with the authorities as well. Oh, and that, I believe that the authorities too. think, you know, they, they trust the bigger bigger plays. So dot Hong Kong domains, uh, yes. tell me a little bit about that and uh, the development uh, of HK, HKIRC. Thank you, Brian. Uh, we are HKIRC. We, we were set up in 2002 to provide domaining registration services for domain names uh, ending with a dot HK. And because dot HK means Hong Kong, it's a geographic top level domain. It is not uh, a privately owned asset. So me, you, and all the Hong Kong people do have an ownership of .hk. As a result, we are set up as a non-profit organization, and we have a memorandum of understanding with the government, and therefore government actually outsource you know, the provisioning of the service to us as a non-profit uh, company. Uh, under .hk, you can have a number of different domain name categories that you can choose from. The, the oldest run around is .com.hk, and that has been around since the early 90s for Hong Kong registered companies. Also, you also have uh, .net.hk for network operators, .org for HK for non-profit organization, .edu.hk for educational institution, .gov.hk for government, and also .idv.hk for individuals. And in addition... Uh, you can also register your name directly under the .hk. This is what we call the generic 
tablet uh, generic uh, registration, whereby, for example, LTHK .hk is possible. Yeah, we switched from uh, uh, from. Uh, rthk.org.hk to just rthk.hk. That's been a, a couple of years. Are you seeing an explosion in these .hk um, domains? Well, uh, frankly, uh, the growth has slowed down a little bit uh, in the past two years. Uh, in the p- earlier days, uh, the growth tend to be 12 to 15% per year. But in the past one to two years, the growth has slowed down to less than 10%. What do you attribute that to? Uh, firstly, uh, I believe, uh, because our target is mainly the SMEs and, and the business, uh, and, uh, and the number so that, that, that might yeah. be a slightly ominous sign that, um, fewer, fewer SMEs are setting up and needing, uh, a domain. Uh, yes. And, and also there are, and those who want to have a website have already done so. Okay. Um, it brings to mind the popvote.hk. Because there was some uh, uh, security difficulties there. This is, of course, for the uh, civil referendum vote in late June. What role did HKIRC play in that? Well, uh, we are the uh, administrator of the .hk domain names. That means all the website or all the emails using the uh, domain name ending with .hk will have to be supported by us both uh, administratively and technically. We actually have... Uh, our technical infrastructure connected to the internet to ensure that your domain name, for example, outhk.hk, can always be mapped into the physical IP addresses so that the domain, the website can be reached and the email can be delivered. Now, on the uh, day uh, when the attack happened, um, initially I think they target only popvoke.hk, the, the website and their DNS server. Yeah. They only targeted that. But then uh, they have expanded their t- attack, uh, and they attack. They try to attack the whole .hk platform, which is actually run by us. If they are su- if they were successful, uh, th- then all the .hk uh, domains would be affected. Therefore, the the impact would be a lot lot bigger than just one or two websites. And so, uh, uh, in those two weeks, from the 14th of June to the uh, 23rd, 24th of June, uh, we saw uh, sort of uh, waves of attack on our platform every now and then. But uh, fortunately, they they did not succeed. You know, they, there is no uh, one, no no uh, single attack that have uh, affected our service. Yeah, in, in the end, weeks. we had 800,000 people uh, or thereabouts. Uh, in voting. Okay, Jonathan, a little wonky in the last answer, but quite interesting uh, nonetheless. Uh, and thank you very much for joining us here in uh, our studios at RTHK. Jonathan Shear, the Chief Executive Officer of HKIRC, actually found that quite stimulating. And I think I'll go to rthk.hk later and find my way to money for nothing and listen back to that to get some of those wonky details that sort of sail by you as you're driving and listening.
More stimulating business talk here on RTHK. This is Money for Nothing. I'm Brian Curtis. The time is now seven minutes before nine o'clock. Continue with our look at news. And it's a nice segue because a group of 13 economists and academics have put forward an amended political reform plan that they say can prevent the pre-screening of chief executive candidates and which conforms strictly to the basic law. Now, their proposal features an all-or-nothing list system where the nominating committee either endorses or rejects all eligible candidates, thus preventing any individual candidate from being eliminated from the poll. Priscilla Ung explains. With weeks left before Beijing decides how the electoral methods for the 2017 chief executive election will be changed, the academics say they hope their updated plan can be acceptable to Beijing, the SAR government, and different sectors of society. It's a complicated plan that calls for the doubling of the size of the old election committee. 1,200 members of the new nominating committee will be chosen in four sectors, like in the past, but 1,200 more members can be chosen by the general electorate. All they need is the vote of 1,200 or more voters. If there are more than 1,200 eligible candidates, they'd be chosen by a random draw. This new nominating committee would then choose candidates for chief executive. Each member has one vote, and all potential CE candidates will need to be endorsed by at least a fifth of the committee. Then, the new list proposal kicks in. All eligible CE candidates, up to five, will be placed on a single list. More than half the nominating committee will then have to sanction the list before the new CE is elected through universal suffrage. If the list gets less than half the vote, all candidates are rejected and the process goes back to square one. One of the 13 academics, Professor Sung Yun Wing from the Chinese University, said this proposal rules out unreasonable screening where individuals are prevented from running and increases the possibility of pan-democrats being able to run. What we are doing is we are addressing the spectrum the diversity of political interests in Hong Kong. We don't want a situation where each individual candidate is put to majority vote in the nominating committee. If that is the case, of course, uh, pandemic has no hope of generating any single candidate at all. Professor Sung said this proposal should be carefully considered by all members of the society because it is in line with the basic law, yet highly democratic. See, that's a piece in particular that you may want to listen to again. It's complicated to follow that. It is a very complicated uh, proposal from that group of 13 economists and academics. And again, you can find that uh, on rthk.hk or you can download the podcast. Well, there are only three weeks to go before the National People's Congress Standing Committee makes a decision on the political reform path here. And with that looming, the pan-democratic camp says time is running out for further discussions. Frederick Fung, the Association for Democracy and People's Livelihood Lawmaker, says... And he still hopes for dialogue with the central government to try to reach some sort of consensus on the 2017 poll. Hugh Chiverton asked Mr. Fung if there's any news yet from the government on such a meeting. Not yet. Uh, I think uh, we're still waiting for, for the uh, uh, answers. What, why do you consider it important? Uh, I think uh, uh, both sides, no matter the uh, Beijing and uh, Pan-Democrat, I think uh, it is a necessary need to, that uh, we
Beijing support them to put up uh, non-political screening proposals. And so uh, we hope that we can sit down and, and say, see whether we can make such a, a consensus. What about that uh, proposal put forward we've just been hearing about by the 13 uh, economists and academics? Is that a viable compromise? Uh, I think they still have two kinds of uh, political screening. Uh, first uh, is to, I think it's the, uh, the criteria for uh, being to be uh, put up uh, as a candidate. Uh, they put up with, uh, and they need 50% of votes to support. I think the, this criteria is, is too high. And secondly, they uh, tie up, the, no matter uh, you are from uh, Democrat or from the government size together uh, in such a case. Uh, I think it affects the, the individual's right as a, a individual. So I think uh, it is a right to be elected and a right to be able to vote. In such a case, why I, I have to tie up with the others? And I, either you are being uh, supported together or not, I, I think that, that affects the individual right to be elected. Frederick Fung, an Association for Democracy and People's Livelihood lawmaker, speaking earlier this morning on Hong Kong Today. James Brady, the former White House press secretary who was wounded during an assassination attempt on President Reagan, has died. He was 93. The BBC's Rajini Vadianathan looks back at his life. As Ronald Reagan's spokesman, James Brady was never meant to be part of the story until March 1981, when, while travelling with the president a gunman opened fire. President Reagan survived the assassination attempt and Brady suffered a serious head wound, which left him partially paralysed, forcing him to use a wheelchair for the rest of his life. Those events led him to become an active anti-gun campaigner. A law which requires background checks on handgun purchases is named after him. And uh, that's from the BBC. The time is now just a minute before nine o'clock. We'll leave you with a look at markets this morning and how they are changing or uh, trading at, at the moment. The Nikkei's down 13 points. That's about a tenth of a percent. In Australia, the ASX 200 down five points and Seoul has moved lower too. So while we were mixed earlier, we're now all, all markets slightly to the downside. Uh, the pound is trading at 13 Hong Kong dollars and seven cents. The renminbi rate 616. The dollar yen 102 61 and the euro a dollar 34 you're listening to money for nothing it's coming up to nine o'clock the weather today mainly fine and very hot isolated showers expected 33 as the maximum we may get some thunderstorms today as well the forecast for the next few days sunny periods some showers later radio three